3: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 193. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show. We have the final part of Michael Moorcock's The Black Petals. I'll tell you what else is coming in today's show. First up is our very own Amy H. Sturgis with Looking Back at Genre History. This is a two part special by Amy as well. Then we have The Black Petals Part 3. And to top it off, to finally finish the Black Petals, we have a fantastic interview with the writer of that, none other than Mr. Michael Moorcock. How about that? Mm -hmm. Let's jump straight into this show then with Amy H. Sturgis and looking back at genre history,
0: Ames! Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It is time for another look back into genre history. In the past, I've done a retrospective segment on H.P. Lovecraft as an important author in genre history. For those of you who are keeping count, that was in Oral Delight, show 150. But what I'd like to do now is look a bit more closely at his nonfiction work, specifically his work as a theorist of and critic of genre fiction. Although his essays In Defense of Dagon, Supernatural Horror in Literature, Some Notes on Interplanetary Fiction, and Notes on Writing Weird Fiction were penned and published during very different eras of Lovecraft's artistic life, they present together a unified defense and exploration of imaginative fiction, In his mind, Lovecraft was the product of science, but in his soul he was the child of wonder, chasing awe and terror like an elusive half-seen shadow glimpsed from the corner of the eye. He captured a revolutionary vision of fiction in his essays. And then he went on to illustrate his theories in the pages of his tales, and he accomplished both with remarkable clarity and increasing sophistication. In today's segment, I'd like to look in particular at his 1921 essay, In Defense of Dagon. By 1921, Lovecraft was a well-established presence in the Anglo-American amateur press community. He frequently contributed articles, reviews, editorials, and poems to amateur publications, and he was a former president of the United Amateur Press Association. In the previous year, he penned at least a dozen short stories, which was an accomplishment unparalleled throughout his career, and his fellow amateur journalists elected him to be the official editor of the UAPA. His first professional fiction publication, which was Herbert West Reanimator in Home Brew, would not be published until the following year. Some of his earlier stories already circulated in various amateur journals, however, and drew comments and questions from readers. One of these was his story Dagon, which appeared in the November 1919 issue of the amateur periodical The Vagrant. In 1921, Lovecraft responded to some of the feedback he'd received on this tale and others by writing three essays for the organization The Transatlantic Circulator. These were The Defense Reopens, which was published in January 1921, The Defense Remains Open in April 21, and Final Words, which came out in September 21. Together, these three works paint a detailed portrait of Lovecraft's early theories on fiction, and collectively, today, they are now known as In Defense of Dagon. Lovecraft opens the first section of In Defense of Dagon by dividing all fiction into three categories, Romantic, realistic and imaginative. The first appeals to the, quote, poetical or emotional, those who value action and emotion for their own sake. The second appeals to the intellectual and analytical, those who value scientific and literal representations of life. Although romantic fiction leads with the heart and realistic fiction leads with the head, Lovecraft explains that both share what he calls, quote, the common quality of dealing almost wholly with the objective world. Romantics and realists alike produce fiction composed of recognizable experiences and known settings. In this, Lovecraft anticipates science fiction scholar James Gunn's classifications, which he put forth in Toward a Defense of Science Fiction in 2005, and in which he identifies both romantic and realistic fiction as the literature of continuity, or writing that represents an unbroken link to the everyday world experienced by us all. One doesn't need to be worried that the pull of the Earth's gravity might affect the characters in Jane Austen's Emma differently than it does the reader, for example, or that they might discover a portal to a parallel universe in their sitting rooms because Austen's fictional persons inhabit a reality that is unthreateningly similar to our own. According to Lovecraft, this fiction of continuity, whether it's emotional or rational, it denies the imagination. And I quote... Which groups isolated impressions into gorgeous patterns and finds strange relations and associations among the objects of visible and invisible nature. End quote. Imaginative fiction, on the other hand, allows the author full creativity, licensed to pursue what Lovecraft called art in its most essential sense. Now, Gunn, in his 2005 essay, calls this imaginative work the literature of discontinuity. Fiction that makes a leap from, or forces a break with, mundane reality. Such fiction, Lovecraft believes, has a naturally small audience. Writing in defense of Dagon, Lovecraft asserts that imaginative fiction lacks widespread appeal because far more people possess emotions and or reason than imagination. But this doesn't lead him to despair. On the contrary... Lovecraft seems to find comfort in taking this sort of marginalized position as one of the elect few, the imaginative. He describes the author of imaginative fiction as, a, quote, a voyager in those unheard of lands which are glimpsed through the veil of actuality, but rarely and only by the most sensitive, end quote. Romantic and realistic fiction might be the meat and potatoes for the masses, but imaginative fiction, Lovecraft argues, is the caviar for those of a more discriminating intellectual palate. It came as no surprise to Lovecraft, then, that some readers were perplexed by his story Dagon— Inspired in part by one of Lovecraft's dreams, Dagon relates the story of a man who plans to commit suicide because he can no longer afford the morphine that offers him respite from a traumatic memory. Without the drug, he recalls a strange experience he had after escaping from a German sea raider during the First World War. Adrift at sea, he came across bizarre traces of an unknown past civilization, which was apparently vomited up from the ocean bed and haunted by a living being. Like, and, and I hear I'm quoting, like a stupendous monster of nightmares. Before he can end his life, the narrator becomes lost in hallucinations of the vile creature. And the tale abruptly ends with his exclamations, God, that hand! The window! The window! Lovecraft revisited the themes of this tale in later works, such as The Call of Cthulhu in 1926 and The Shadow over Innsmouth in 1931, um, the latter of which even references Dagon by name. Dagon fits all Lovecraft's understanding of imaginative fiction by offering the reader a vision of one of those unheard of lands, in this case, what he calls the immeasurable black canyon in the slimy expanse of hellish black mire at sea. Lovecraft never explains fully what the narrator's discovery of the landmass, its mysterious stone monolith, and the horrific creature mean, except for madness for the unfortunate guy. The reader receives only a passing glimpse of uh, cryptic bas-reliefs and weird inscriptions on the stone, only an unfocused glance at the lurking monster, but these are enough to suggest that fundamental assumptions we hold about our world are mistaken. In so doing, Dagon breaks the rules of the mundane. Writing in defense of Dagon, then, Lovecraft is untroubled by a reader's protest that the story does not seem plausible or real. He just doesn't care. Those goals belong to the author of the romantic or realistic tale, not the writer of imaginative fiction. Lovecraft goes on in in defense of Dagon to note that his aim in stories like Dagon is, quote, purely and simply to reproduce a mood. The reaction he preferred, of course, was fear. His further responses to reader comments show he sought to create that desired mood in a particular kind of way. For example, he writes, The essence of the horrible is the unnatural. To inspire horror, then, Lovecraft described things that challenge the reader's understanding of what is right and how things are. One of the most prevalent examples of this throughout his collected stories is his repeated description of hyperbolic and elliptic geometry in architecture, the strangeness and wrongness of non-Euclidean angles in alien structures. And his story Dagon supplies another case. The narrator studies images carved in the stone monolith. Their forms and size seem hopelessly wrong compared to the protagonist and what he knows and what the reader knows to be true. And here I'll give you a quote. Grotesque beyond the imagination of a Poe or a Bulwer, they were damnably human in general outline, despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy, bulging eyes, and other features even less pleasant to recall. Curiously enough, they seemed to have been chiseled badly out of proportion with their scenic background, for one of the creatures was shown in the act of killing a whale, represented as but little larger than himself. End quote. Such things, the narrator assumes, just can't be. They're unnatural. By undermining this assumption and suggesting a world in which such things definitely can be, a world in which we're face-to-face with them, in fact, Dagon produces Lovecraft's desired effect. Another tool Lovecraft uses to build mood is scale. In his essay, he admits, quote, "...probably the worst thing is solitude in barren immensity." Dagon provides a clear example of how he employs this worst thing in his writing. The narrator relates, quote, "...I think my horror was greater when I gained the summit of the mound and looked down the other side into an immeasurable pit or canyon." whose black recesses the moon had not yet soared high enough to illumine. I felt myself on the edge of the world, peering over the rim into a fathomless chaos of eternal night." Alone, dwarfed by his unfamiliar and fantastic surroundings, the protagonist feels unmoored and insignificant. And so too, for that matter, does the reader. Scale not only helped to create a mood, it also reflected Lovecraft's cosmic perspective on the universe. In the second section of *Indefensive of Dagon, Lovecraft writes, quote, "...man's relations to man do not captivate my fancy. It is man's relations to the cosmos, to the unknown, which alone arouses in me the spark of creative imagination." the humanocentric pose is impossible for me, for I cannot acquire the primitive myopia which magnifies the earth and ignores the background. Quote. So informed by the revelations of astronomy and the other hard sciences he studied, Lovecraft grew to embrace an atheistic, mechanistic materialism, and he saw the universe as vast and unknowable, and humanity as fleeting and inconsequential. His tales of elder gods and various other creatures from across space and time reflected his conviction that humans occupied a most humble place in the cosmic hierarchy, destined to be neither first nor last on this planet, but rather the victims of impersonal and mighty forces we can neither comprehend nor combat. Some of his most celebrated stories, such as The Color Out of Space, first published in 1927, The Call of Cthulhu in 28, The Whisperer in Darkness in 31, At the Mountains of Madness in 36, The Haunter of the Dark, also in 36, and The Shadow Out of Time, still yet in 36, uh, among others... Allude to malignant extraterrestrial presences and the dire repercussions their secrets may hold for humankind. This cosmic outlook remains one of the trademarks of Lovecraft's imaginative fiction. Fritz Leiber, Jr., was one of the earliest critics to recognize the revolutionary change in perspective that Lovecraft's scale of storytelling made possible. In A Literary Copernicus, which appeared first in full form in Something About Cats and Other Pieces in 1949, Liber argues that Lovecraft, quote, shifted the focus of supernatural dread from man and his little world and his gods to the stars and the black and unplumbed gulfs of intergalactic space, end quote. In Lovecraft and the Cosmic Quality in Fiction, First published in the May 1976 issue of The Diversifier, critic Richard L. Tierney coins the label Cosmos-Centered to describe the style of fiction Lovecraft created and discussed. As Tierney explains, the Cosmos-Centered tale, quote, attempts to ease the reader away from his preconceived notions entirely and leave him with the odd feeling that he really knows nothing about the cosmos at all, but is about to know." Lovecraft's cast of protagonists from the unfortunate narrator of Dagon to other scientists, researchers, journalists, and seekers is made up of those who are about to know, many of whom pay a high price for their terrible knowledge, forfeiting either their lives or their sanity. Perhaps Lovecraft's cosmic sense of scale is best summed up in his short story, The Silver Key, which was first published in the January 29 issue of Weird Tales. Lovecraft writes that, quote, the blind cosmos grinds aimlessly on from nothing to something and from something back to nothing again, neither heeding nor knowing the wishes or existence of the minds that flicker for a second now and then in the darkness, end quote. To be sure, this cosmic perspective is neither reassuring nor uplifting. Yet Lovecraft's unswerving willingness to accept the unflattering, unsympathetic lessons taught by science led directly to his need for imaginative fiction. The eminent H.P. Lovecraft scholar S.T. Joshi pointed out in his scriptorium essay, H.P. Lovecraft, that, I quote, it was precisely because Lovecraft felt the universe to be an unswerving mechanism with rigid natural laws that he required the escape of imagination, quote. So without the cosmic perspective, then, there would be no need either for Dagon or in defense of Dagon. Lovecraft would carry this cosmic worldview, as well as his burden and conviction for imaginative fiction— through the following stages of his artistic life. I will end this segment here, and in my next segment, I will pick up with the second half of this two-part look at Lovecraft's essays and what they tell us about his understanding about genre fiction. I hope you've enjoyed this look back into genre history, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
3: I thank you, Amy. Thank you very much. Look out for the second part of Amy H. Sturgis' Looking Back at Genre History. So we have the concluding part of The Black Petals by Michael Moorcock. It is narrated by our very own Peter Cavall. Peter has done just a stunning job on this, so I really appreciate it, Peter. I'll put a link on to Michael's site and Peter's site. Do pop over there. Straight after the story, I'll run straight into with the interview that with, did with Michael Moorcock as well. So you've got that to look forward to as well.
2: So the starship Sova is very proud to present. Black Petals, an Elric story by Michael Moorcock, read by Peter Cavell. In chapters 1 and 2, Prince Elric of Melnabone and his companion Moonglam arrived in Nasiatiki in search of a plant called the Nebeluscus or black anemone. Legend told that this plant, said to bloom only once every thousand years, could cure the symptoms of the deadly form of albinism from which Elric suffered. They met with a local doctor, Nashatak Squet, and discovered that they were not the only party in search of the Noibeluscus. Tylus Creek, king of the Oit, had recently made the treacherous journey upriver to the ruined city of Soom, seeking the flower, and had not returned. The Oit King's twin daughters were currently in Nasiatiki, trying to raise troops to go in search of their father. On the advice of Dr. Nashatak Squet, Elric and Moonglum sought an audience with the Republican council. Upon arriving at the council house, they met the princesses Semlidaor and Nahwadwar, and the other members of their party, their countrymen Duke Origino, the young Horrid Mevza, and Divimmar, Elric's cousin, who still held him responsible for the tragedy which had struck their nation some time ago. Divimar was also the only survivor of the Oit King's expedition to Soom and had lost his entire company of mercenaries in a battle with the savage, dwarfish creatures who currently occupied the city. Elric and Moonglum offered their assistance, at least until they reached the city of Soom, and the princesses accepted. Plans were made to set out the next morning. In Chapters 3 and 4, Elric and Moonglum met the company at the docks, and set sail upriver for Soom. After four days' sailing through the dense jungle, they arrived, and Divamar led them to where his party had been ambushed. At first the city seemed deserted, but suddenly a screaming man, every inch of skin flayed from his body, burst forth from one of the pyramids. In the confusion that followed, the natives attacked. The hail of arrows and javelins forced the party to retreat into a walled courtyard where they found the small dark shoot that would soon grow into the Neubeluscus. Elric's strength was nearly gone, but he knew that the plant could not be harvested until nightfall, some hours away. From inside one of the pyramids, the Oit King called out to the company, urging them to flee while they still could. Trapped in the courtyard with no escape, Divimar berated Elric, telling him to save them all by drawing upon the power of Stormbringer, the magical black sword that could sustain his life by devouring the souls of those it killed. Still, Elric resisted the urge to give in to the sword's addictive evil, and instead summoned the last of his strength to cast a spell, crying out the name Sassuras. Chapter 5. Kalakak. Somewhere under the river, In a dimension of waters and dark foliage, Elric's voice found a supernatural resonance, stirring the memory of a creature which opened its jaws a fraction and passed a long, leathery tongue between pointed teeth. Its eyes were shut in the sleep of centuries and would not open. The creature's curiosity was not yet aroused. Indeed, it still dreamed dark, sluggish dreams of death, of things devoured and things to be devoured. It was some time before it recognized the word which had awakened it, and some further time before it recalled that Sassaras was perhaps one of its waking names, though not the name by which it identified itself. That name was Kalakak, and it knew that somewhere it had kindred which spoke to it, called to it. But Kalakak still dreamed that it lay curled in the egg its mother had laid somewhere in the multiverse so many millennia ago. Kallikak lay safely in the mud on the bank of a vast river, whose further bank could not be seen. The World River wound between mudflats, and beyond the mudflats was the rich warmth of mile-high, thick-bold trees, branches twisting and curling and full of living things, all of which tempted its appetite. Kallikak remembered its appetite. It began to salivate. It remembered Sasuras, that name— the name which called it not to feed but to serve, and it was therefore somewhat slower in its response. Sasorash, Kalak's tail twitched. Its limbs began to sting and its eyes moved beneath heavy lids. Sasorash, Calikak's nostrils moved and tasted murky, amniotic air. Something flickered in the darkness, veins of red fire, streaks of deep green and blue. And Kalakak took a massive breath. Elric lay in Moonglum's arms. Divamar looked on, almost sympathetic. Somewhere near the ruined gap in the wall, Horrid Mevza thrashed and groaned and clawed at an arrow which had found a gap between his helmet and his throat. Princess Semlidor stood beside him, trying to stop him from moving while she attempted to snap the head of the arrow from the shaft. It stuck out from the side of his neck. She spoke to him as soothingly as she could. Elsewhere, Duke Origino and Princess Nahwadwar peered around their shield rims. A makeshift brand in her hand cast sputtering light across the compound. Out in the square, shadows shifted, running swiftly here and there, shooting arrows, flinging lances. Only by accident had an arrow struck Hored Mevza. The young man dropped to one knee, his eyes wide with horror, as the princess at last managed to get the haft out of him and staunch the blood with his own torn shirt. The arrow had not struck the jugular. Weakly, Elric climbed to his feet, balancing with the spear, the steel sword in his right hand. From above, men's voices were shouting, and it seemed to him that the captured Melnobonians had broken free and were fighting their captors. Certainly something was happening up there. He looked over to where the black anemone grew, its tendrils pulsing and lengthening with every passing moment, the flower not yet opened. His mouth was dry. His arms and legs shook. He had difficulty breathing. Elric, you're too enfeebled. Munglum spoke reluctantly. The spell did not work. Divimar was grim. There is only the black sword now. Still Elric shook his head. "'Trembling, he steadied himself with the spear and, sword raised with difficulty, turned to Princess Nahwadwar. "'I led us into a trap, I admit, but I promise I will do all I can now.' "'She cursed a soldier's curse and all but spat in his face. "'I thought you of all men would be the one to help us. "'Now my father faces dreadful death, and your own people too. "'You carry an unhappy weird upon you, Elric of Melnaboné.' Oh, how I wish I had not let you join us! He managed to respond, his smile ironic, panting. Madam, you must try to wait until midnight before you condemn me entirely. Another flight of arrows came pouring through the gap. By now they had taken cover. Horrid Mevza had stopped screaming, and now sat against a wall, breathing rapidly, the rag pressed on his wound which no longer bled badly. Princess Samlidor, sword in hand, darted a quick glance around the ragged gap. I can see little in this blackness. It sounds as if they've gone back into the ruins or the forest. Then, as if to contradict her, from above several spears rattled down uselessly. The object of both attacks was to demoralize them. Moonglum's attention was on the Noebeluskus. It's bigger. Look! It reached towards the starlit sky now, touched by the first faint traces of the rising moon. Even though Elric had studied all there was to study about the plant, its rate of growth astonished him. Was he going to die there, with the object of his quest so close? Watching it go through its entire life cycle, while unable to make use of its petals? Elric, take the buds! Moonglum helped his friend to his feet. The attempted summoning had weakened him too much. Yet still he refused to untangle the wire binding his sword. The long stem of the black anemone stretched high towards the night sky and then curled downwards. It was only as it reached out towards the wounded Horde at Mevza that Elric realized the thing seemed to be questing for something, questing for fresh blood. Munglum cried, No! and leapt forward, twin sabers whirling, slashing at the plant, which reared back, hissing. Blood had stimulated the plant's growth. "'It needs more blood! It's feeding!' Moonglum's shout stimulated the albino, who cursed himself. That was why they had been tricked into entering the compound. They were food for the black flower. The knowledge seemed to stimulate the albino. Shouting an oath, his voice quavering, Elric shook his fist up at the window, to be answered by a haphazard rain of missiles. "'Those savages want us wounded but not dead!' That's why they took so many prisoners, to feed the plant. A plant which drank blood and souls as thirstily as his rune sword. Above him scarred, wicked little faces glared down at them. Out in the night, the other savages prowled, their only intent being to keep the party inside the compound. As it had dawned on Divamar that they were the intended food for the black plant, he began to whistle an old, complicated Melnibonian melody the drowned boy. What do you say, cousin? Elric asked. Would you wait like a pig in the slaughterhouse, or would you die fighting these filthy little devils? His kinsman darted a look of approval and began to move towards the ragged gap in the wall. Before he could reach his object, he drew a startled breath and stepped backwards, staring. Turning sideways onto the plant, Moonglum peered into the gloom. There was something else out there now. "'a much larger, heavier shadow. Some kind of beast?' "'And then Elric collapsed, and Duke Origino came blundering past them, "'screaming to flee into the night. They looked back. "'Gods, it's so fast!' Munglum gasped. "'He tried to help, but he was already carrying Elric. "'The plant writhed and shifted on the ground. "'It had seized poor young, horrid Mevza, who now struggled in its coils.' It was squeezing him, so that his blood streamed out from his orifices to be sucked up by the plant's tapering bud. Ugh, the poor bastard's dead already. What had been a thin stem was now a fair-sized trunk, and as they watched, horrified, it thickened visibly, sucking the flesh and blood from the youth's now limp body. Then it dropped back to the ground, slithering into the spread-out skin of the flayed man, filling it. A travesty of a human creature now swayed before them, its tendrils occupying the skin like legs and arms. And from each branch now, more tendrils sprang, like fingers and toes, reaching towards the five who remained in the compound. The plant, distinctly manlike in form, continued to grow. And still, Elric knew, it was not yet moonrise. Still the plant sought more sustenance. With a yell, Divamar now flung himself forward and began to hack at the disgusting limbs. The sisters imitated him, their scimitars flashing in the growing light from the sky. Moonglum tried hard to hold his friend upright. Elric did his best to summon the last of his strength. He fell forward, stabbing at the monstrous thing. Anger and disappointment and rage empowered him. He had wanted no more than a normal life, of the kind enjoyed by others. "'Again and again he thrust the sword, but made no impression upon the thing. "'A noise behind them. "'Duke Origino came shrieking back into the compound. "'His armor was pierced in a dozen places by arrows. "'His helmet had been knocked from his head, which streamed with blood. "'He gibbered and pointed behind them and then fell to the ground. "'They tried to pull him free of the black anemone, but the gigantic plant was too strong. "'Its tendrils wrapped around the duke's body and dragged him to itself.' He gave one last long yodelling cry as he was lifted into the air, and then suddenly the full moon rose above the high wall and illuminated the scene. The struggling Duke Origino, the five figures, weapons in their hands, gathered around the swaying man-like plant. Then they turned around to see what Duke Origino had seen, what had caused him to flee back into the compound. Kallikak said, "Elric, and he smiled. CHAPTER Six: THE BLACK FLOWERS BLOSSOMING The two women stared in horror as the creature Elric called Kalakak pushed its massive bulk against the gap in the compound. Breaking down the ancient brick, its cold green eyes glaring, its long snout opening to reveal teeth the length of swords and the thickness of a man's arm. In the moonlight its scales glistened with water. Its massive tail thrashed this way and that, scattering the corpses of the savages who tried to attack it. When it saw Elric, it lumbered towards him, and from its vast red throat something like language sounded. Only Elric could understand everything it said, but Divamar recognized a form of High Melnabonian, which he and the Furn dragon spoke between themselves. The monstrous reptile looked down at Elric, who was again supported on Moonglum's shoulder. Its eyes were full of profound memory of old wisdom and a new thirst. "'You summoned me, old friend. "'I thought you had not heard me, Lord Kallikak. "'I called you in the name of our ancient pact. "'I presumed you still slept. "'The thing looked like nothing as much as a gigantic crocodile, "'but its snout and tail were more slender, its legs and webbed feet longer. "'Like certain dragons, it had a tall, spiked crest on its neck and head.' Its color was neither green, nor black, nor brown. It was not an earthy color. As it moved, its scales clashed softly, the sound of wind over drying leather. True, it will be a millennium or two before I am fully rested. Now I am at your service, at least before sleep claims me again. Unlike our mutual kin, the Forn, I need rather more sleep than a mere century. The jaws clacked and smacked, almost as if Kallikak joked. Remember, I cannot kill for you. Otherwise, you must tell me what you need before I return to the river below the river and close my eyes. There is a dream I need to continue. As the manlike plant, distracted, began to devour Duke Origino, Elric pointed towards the high window. We need to reach that opening, yonder. Can you help us? "'Use my crest to climb.' "'Steadying his scaly bulk with his tail, "'Kalikak lifted himself on his huge hindquarters, "'his snout extending to the window "'from which the Oit King Tylus Creek, "'had last called to his daughters. "'The black flower swayed in the background, "'unable to assess this new potential danger, "'as if for all the world a sentient thing. "'The albino was dangerously weak, "'but he could still call out instructions to the others.' They began to clamber up the reptile's massive back. Below them, the black plant thrashed and screeched. Above them, the dwarfish cannibals crowded to the window and stared in disbelieving consternation. With a yell as bloodthirsty as any warriors, Princess Nahwadwar led the way through the window, her scimitar taking off a head as smoothly as if she were cutting daisies in a field. Then she disappeared inside, Divimar and Princess Semlidor behind her. Elric and Moonglum were the last to reach the window. With a word of thanks to Lord Kallikak. the albino dropped into the room. The princesses and his cousin had already taken their toll of the savages. Bodies lay everywhere. Red revenge had been taken at last. The remaining savages scrambled into the outer corridors and scattered as far as they could go. They left their prisoners bound but otherwise unharmed. Weeping with joy, the princesses ran towards their straight-backed but naked father. As they cut his bonds, he stared at them in astonishment. He, like the captured Melnebonians, had not expected to survive this night. Rubbing circulation back into his limbs, King Tylus Creek crossed to a corner of the room where weapons were stacked and found his own sword amongst them, returning it to his scabbard. He was a tall, old man with a short gray beard and long hair. He drew on a padded surcoat over mail and sweated in the heat of the night. Moonlight streamed into the room, showing Moonglum, Elric, and Divimar the captured warriors, whom they set about releasing. Elric leaned beside the window, taking great gasps of air, scarcely able to stand. Below the ground shuddered. Presumably Lord Kallikak had dropped back to all four gigantic legs. Looking down, Elric saw that oddly-colored tail disappearing from the compound. Out in the moonlight, the black flowers still hissed and slithered and quested for fresh blood. Swiftly, the released soldiers recovered their weapons, then embraced their commander, Divimar. To Elric, they offered more formal thanks, clearly surprised by his ruined condition. Some showed concern as he leaned weakly against the window frame, still gasping for breath. The summoning of Kallikak had exhausted what was left of his strength, and the climb had taken the rest. We owe our lives to our emperor, Divimar explained. Without him, gentlemen, we would all be dead. The fine-featured bright Empire soldiers remained reserved in their greetings, but some were prepared to accept the truth of their captain's short speech, and bowed briefly to the Prince of Ruins, best known as Kinslayer, whose treachery had destroyed their homeland. Elric expected nothing from them, save acknowledgment of his rank, for none denied that he was their rightful emperor, named by his dying father as the true inheritor of the ruby throne. "'How easily can we leave Soom?' said Princess Nahwadwar. "'We are still outnumbered by the savages. "'Has your reptilian ally departed the city, Prince Elric?' "'He was the best I could summon under present conditions. "'He helped us, but he is forbidden to kill, "'which is the thing he yearns to do most.' "'Like our Imririan dragons, he must sleep a year for every hour or so that he's awake. "'He returns to his rest.' "'So we have no other ally against the savages?' asked Princess Nahwadwar, "'glancing significantly at his sword. "'Only our own courage and cunning, my lady.' "'Elric turned again to glance through the window, and stumbled suddenly backward. "'A thick black tendril appeared. "'Next moment it was curling through the opening.' Moonglum yelled to his companions, "'Quickly! Back down the stairs! We'll fight our way through the savages to the river!' Already the tendril had come snaking in, as if scenting blood. Elric cocked his head. He could almost hear it sniffing out his remaining life-stuff. Led by Divamar and Tylus Creek, with the twin princesses following close behind and Elric leaning on his friend— The Melnobonians poured from the room and down the broad, deep-winding, blood-stained stone steps within the pyramid. It was almost with a sense of anticlimax that they ran out into the open square to find no enemies. Warily, back to back, they moved slowly out through the alien ruins towards the jungle. Half-fainting, entirely dependent on the stocky Eastlander, Elric came last. From the darkness, spears and arrows flew— Amel sobbed with pain as an arrow took him in the arm. Without another sound, he pulled the arrow through and discarded it. The remaining Lormirian archer gathered the arrows for his own quiver. Their shields absorbed the worst of the onslaught, protecting Elric and Moonglum. With a hissed curse, the archer fitted an arrow to his string and sent it back into the invisible pack. Two more men were lost to enemy spears before they reached the edge of the jungle. In the moonlight, they could retrace their original progress from the river. The undergrowth remained dense. With Divamar leading, they moved slowly on. For the first time, the savages made a direct attack. Tattooed faces, white, glaring eyes, ochre skins and an assortment of cruel axes, spears, swords and lances suddenly surrounded them. No longer was the strategy to herd them into the compound to become food for the black anemone. Now the cannibals sought only to kill the survivors, so that the Manflower would not devour the degenerate Sumians themselves. Their caution was gone. Moonglum, guarding Elric, who was still barely able to hold his blade, did his best to fight back. Then Princess Nahwadwar took the albino's arm onto her own shoulder and helped defend him as they stumbled on. Mostly, the enemy's weapons fell on shields or were blocked by steel. Every so often, one of Elric's party would groan and blood would flow, but they could smell the river now. If the savages had not destroyed their boat, the remains of the two expeditions might still escape. Then the remaining savages had fallen back. For a moment the jungle was still. No animals called, nothing moved. The brilliant moonlight cast deep shadows. Some of them seemed to shift and curl into alarming shapes. Maybe... Murmured Moonglum. They've lost their stomach for the fight? King Tylus Creek let out a long, relieved sigh just as a huge, man like shape loomed up behind them. A giant with long, curling fingers. Waving as if momentarily unsteady, it balanced itself in their wake. The black anemone lumbered relentlessly after fresh food. Any food, so long as it pulsed with human blood. Then, suddenly, a dark arm shot into their ranks. The last Lormirian archer shrieked and beat at the huge shape as he was lifted into the air. They watched, helplessly. We are finished, murmured King Tylus. We cannot defeat that thing. I know its power. I should never have led my men here. Now my daughters will die obscenely thanks to my folly. You go on. I will stay here and try to slow it. It was clear he had no hope of defeating the hugely bloated, manlike tree. Only a few hours before it had been a tiny shoot. Now it came swiftly after them, gaining speed with every kill. Whenever it paused, it plucked another man from the jungle. It was indiscriminate. Savages, too, were lifted, kicking and shouting into its maw. They had no chance of reaching the river before they were caught and their life-stuff added to its size, speed and energy. We will fight together, said Divimar, coming to stand beside the king. Moonglum drew his twin sabers. Rest your back on mine, friend Elric. Sadly, we'll die disappointed deaths, killed by the very treasure we sought. No, said Elric. He sighed. Get the women and the rest of our fighters to the boat. I will stay to slow its advance. The savages had not fled after all. Realizing that they were now also food for the Noebeluscus, they flung themselves against the Melnebonians, perhaps hoping their blood would satisfy the black flower. This time Princess Samlidor gasped as a sawtooth blade slashed her arm. Her father roared his anger, and his sword took the attacker in the throat. Blood spurted. Another black tendril came out of the night and seized the slain savage. "'Go!' cried the albino, almost falling. "'All of you, go!' "'And his fingers began to fumble at the copper wire securing his sword. "'Seeing this, Moonglum gripped his shoulder. "'Elric, we may yet—' "'No, we'll all be slain. "'And for what? "'Take everyone and hold the boat for a little while. "'I'll try to join you. "'If not, well then, I'm missed by one friend at least, "'and a debt will be partly paid.' "'Like five long fingers,' Black petals, a hideous, gaping travesty of a massive human hand, reached for his arm. He drew back in horror, his own feeble fingers trying desperately to untie the thong securing his sword's hilt to his belt. Moonglum paused and helped the albino to untie the wire. Then he turned and with a shout began to run into the jungle, herding the little party of survivors before him. The black anemone rose up out of the tangle of silhouetted forest, the full moon outlining its writhing head, while moonlight revealed its broad, waving arms and hands. A thin, terrible whistling noise escaped the cluster of long leaves surrounding what resembled a mouth. From under its feet, a score of savages rose to surround Elric. For a moment, the tattooed cannibals stood there confronting him. The silvery light emphasized the whiteness of his skin. No doubt they saw him as some kind of phantom, the chief source of their plan's failure. With deliberate movements, they began to close in on him, watched by the creature they had created through their barbaric blood sacrifice. Elric grinned. Reaching for the great broadsword at his hip, he drew it from its scabbard. So finely balanced was the black blade, he could hold it easily in one hand, almost like a rapier. The sword murmured and whispered in his grasp, and he felt a sudden rush of energy suffuse him, a thrill of ecstasy that others might feel in lovemaking. Then he began his work. Elric's eyes blazed with red, unholy light, reflecting the flickering runes which ran up and down his blade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for
3: professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
2: He swung Stormbringer first one way and then another, as if to display its power. His lips twisted in crazy delight as he stepped towards the savages, now standing between him and the creature they had raised. His chest rose and fell with deep, strong breaths. He knew a pleasure he had all but forgotten. And, as that familiar black radiance poured from the blade, and its song rose and fell in a melody that to him, at least, was beautiful, He remembered why the black sword had been so hard to put aside, why his addiction had taken so long to conquer. Ah! Again he swung the blade, but this time it was not in display. Ariok! Ariok! Lord of the Seven Darks! Ariok! Blood and souls for my lord Ariok! This time the black, strangely wrought metal sliced into flesh and bone. Heads sprang from necks like so many weeds in a hayfield. Arms flew into the foliage. Legs buckled and torsos were hacked in half. Terrified savages tried to flee, but were now trapped between Elric and the black anemone, drunk on the smell of ruined flesh. It was down on the jungle floor, sucking the blood which pumped from the remains of their bodies. It clucked and yelped with dreadful glee. A few men managed to scuttle past the monster they had brought into being, only to be snared by its prescient tendrils. Elric yelled mockery at the creature. "'Come on! Come, Black Flower! Come to me! My blood is thin, but it is yours if you can take it!' The Neuboluskus paused, staring from its strange head, around which great spiked leaves curled like a living crown. It bent, reaching out its long branches towards this laughing, white-faced, puny little thing of flesh and thin blood which challenged it, and which, perhaps, it sensed as the agent of its own frustration. Voicing the ancient battle yells of his ancestors, Elric ran at the black anemone. "'Arioch! My lord Arioch! Blood and souls for thee and thine! I present thee with this sacrifice!' The life force of all those he had killed seared through his veins, filling him with preternatural energy, with a wonderful lust he had almost forgotten, but always craved. The tendril hands reached out to seize him. Elric dodged them, hacking at legs like two trunks standing across the path in front of him. The hands curled down to try to grasp him. A weird shriek escaped the monster as the black blade slashed at the writhing fingers, sending them flying into the undergrowth. "'Arioch! Blood and souls for my lord Arioch!' The albino's features were contorted in unhuman delight, and from somewhere in the darkness came a low, mocking chuckle, as if Elric's patron demon had always known that he and the sword would feed again. At last the black flower was down, but still the arms whipped and thrust and grasped for the albino. Still the black sword sang, Monstrous branches transformed themselves into snakes, coiling around his body, his arms, his legs. But too much energy now pulsed through him. He easily broke free, the blade rising and falling, rising and falling, like a woodsman's axe in the forest. Suddenly, he was tireless. With every blow, the albino's energy increased while the plant weakened. The head darted at Elric, the cluster of long, tough leaves spearing towards his face, trying to suck it from his shoulders. But he dodged it, cleverly, still laughing with that wild, maniacal glee, as much in his blade's power as it was in his. A huge blow. Another. Squealing and chittering. Parts of the plant tried to escape now, slicing off into the undergrowth. From head to toe, Elric was covered in black sap, but still he hacked at the thing finally pausing to reach out and rip the crown of leaves from around the ruined head, to snatch a handful of large seeds, beating like so many hearts from the center. He stepped back, panting. His body sang and thrilled with the force pouring through it. He lifted his head in exultation, shouting his mocking triumph at the moon. ARIOCH! A tendril began to curl itself around his leg. To his horror, he realized that the plant was reforming itself. He stepped back, and with the point of his sword, threw the branch as far as it would go. Then he turned and ran towards the river. Epilogue The full moon still brightened the dark waters as they rowed out into midstream, and began to follow the current away from Soom divimar seven Melnibonians, the king of the oit his two daughters and moonglum in the stern of the boat taking no part in the rowing sat a solitary figure washed clean of the filth that had covered it its pale hand resting on the pommel of a scabbarded black broadsword crimson gloomy eyes stared into another world seeing nothing of the others after some time Tylus Creek made his way to where Elric sat and placed a hand on his shoulder. I must thank you, Prince, for all you did tonight. I know from your friend and your kinsman that it was no easy decision. You saved our lives. Perhaps, too, you saved our souls. I can only imagine the cost to you. Elric turned those brooding eyes upon the Oit. He nodded slowly. Then he reached into his purse, feeling what writhed there. "'almost like human flesh. "'He drew the stuff out, "'a bunch of already drying black petals, "'which still moved with a life of their own, "'a few large pods, "'which also had a fleshy look to them. "'Here,' he said, "'I have no further use for these. "'I sought a remedy for my condition. "'I should have known the only real remedy "'is the one I carry with me.' "'He held the petals and spores "'of the Nobiluscus towards the king.' "'but Tylus Creek shook his aging head. "'I thank thee, Elric. "'We both sought to save something "'by the cultivation of the black anemone, "'and both of us risked far too much in its pursuit. "'Perhaps we are lucky to have learned something "'and still have our lives. "'Perhaps. "'With a sudden movement, "'the albino took the petals and scattered them overboard "'onto the murky, glistening water. "'For a moment they wriggled on the surface like fish.' And then sank out of sight. He threw the pods after them. It was just possible the current would carry them down river and even out into the sea. One day they might even find fresh soil in which to take root. Whether they would ever again be nurtured by human blood, find form in human skin, however, was unlikely. As the king moved discreetly back to join his other daughter amidships, Princess Nahwadwar came to sit beside Elric her face flushing as she looked boldly up into his dangerous eyes. And will you still seek a substitute for the black flower? she asked. Taking her hand, he shook his head. My lady, the sword will have to serve me for my usual sustenance. Meanwhile, I have other things with which to console myself. Yet, even as she responded to his touch, he looked away again as if still hoping to see something in that dense, unpleasant forest.
3: So believe it or not, we have Mr. Michael Moorcock on the end of this line now. Mike, so nice of you to stop by Starship Sofa.
4: Well thanks, thanks uh, for getting in touch Tony. It oh, was nice to hear from you. God, it's a
3: pleasure. and I was just saying before there it's two thousand and seven when myself and Kieran flew over to Paris to do a like, little interview with you and anyone who hasn't seen it, it's up on YouTube there now, but Mike, are you still backwards and forwards from you know your, your base in Texas to Paris? Do you still do that route
4: yeah, we do we we've, um we we've, we've got a flat here now we we were in a rented flat when uh, when when we saw you but we're now living in uh, in the 10th which is a much more interesting area than uh, where we were i think we would know the eiffel tower in a very posh flat at the time when 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 we you know when when you you came over but now we're in a we're in a well it's a very nice flat but we're uh, we're right in the middle of of um what's essentially a north african vietnamese chinese um, African neighborhood, and it's, it's a, it's one I like a lot better than the, than the rather fancy neighborhood we were, you know, we, we, you, it's one of the few places you can get, you can rent flats in for a short time, in, it is always the posh places, because obviously they're not gonna, you know, um, offer, offer tourist flats in, in, uh, in, uh, working class areas, as it were.
3: So is is the, um, the the flat business? Do you just be there for the say I don't know, say six months, and then that flat will go by the wayside? You'll go back to Texas, then you have the whole process of looking for another flat.
4: Yeah, we, no, no, we, 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 that used to be it. Yes, but well, we had an agent, you know, and the agency used to used to rent us the flats, but now we've got our own flat. We just you know we we just um, lock it up when we leave and uh, unlock it when we get back. And we've got a very good concierge here who who looks after it for us. So you know, it's uh, it's very nice. And how how often do you stay in France then? Um, well, it's sort of half and half. It's it was, at the moment we're spending more time in America because Linda's mother's um, ill, and we you know we, we need to sort of get back and check check up on her from time to time. Um, but but we plan plan to be about you know about half and half.
3: Now it's funny because, like I said, the last time we were there, or the, the only time we were there, is you had a bit of a sore foot, and you were, you know, find found a bit guilty dragging you out to certain restaurants and things like that. You were limping. <laughs> is your is your foot cleared up? Are you are you in good health yourself?
4: Oh yeah, I'm in great health now. I had, I mean, uh, it's I just got off crutches in uh, March, I think it was. Um, because they, they they amputated the rest of my toes, which I'd been trying to get them to do for some time. Because I thought, you know, I'd rather get it over with and get them all off, and you know, and, and get back to normal, as it were, which I am now. Um, because you don't really need your toes, you know, except of <laughs> course for, except except for arithmetic. So I can now only count up to fifteen. <laughs>
3: That's uh that's bizarre. What was the whole experience like of that? I mean, if you don't mind us asking well, these mean, questions,
4: just no, I don't mind. But it we went on for about ten years, and and uh, you know, Linda. Without Linda's, um, I suppose you'd call it nursing attention. You know, I don't think I would have. I think I would have probably lost my leg. But uh, she 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 just looked after me all that time, and now she's of course trying to trying to get. Unused to doing that, <laughs> to, you know, getting back to living more of her own life than she was. So it's, uh, it's a very weird, weird thing for, for both of us in a way, you know. But, but it is much better and, and I, I feel a lot better and I'm, you know, a lot more optimistic. I'm doing a lot more work now, I think, than I was, which it was, the interruptions. I kept getting interruptions, you know, because of having to go to the hospital every day and all that sort of stuff. But I couldn't really work very easily, so although it may not seem it, I I haven't really been turning out as much, you know, as I usually do. And now I'm back to work, and I'm I'm uh, catching up on a lot of stuff, and, and feeling very good about it. You know, that's one
3: that's one of the questions I've, I've I was going to ask you, you know, is, is retirement just an evil word for you, or do you think one day you're going to just have to say it? That's enough. Do you know? I've had enough. <laughs>
4: <laughs> i don't think you do retire, you know i don't think anybody does um much these days. nobody retires its, it's, it's you know you, you hang on to your job as long as possible but uh i i'm uh yeah i mean i, I don't think i'll retire I, I I talked about it you know as a joke a few years ago that I was going to retire, and I was only going to write one book a year um <laughs> so, so, so it was so uh, <laughs> and and now actually uh, of course i am writing about one book a year although although i'm doing a lot of other stuff i'm doing a lot of uh, um non fiction as well as fiction so um yeah it's 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 uh, it, it's great now, i'm still you know i'm still having to get used to it um used to being able to consider long term work which i hadn't been before because you know when you get interrupted pretty much every day by having to go to a hospital or go to a hyperbaric chamber or, you know, whatever it is, you, um, you, know, you, you, you lose your rhythm, really, um, as far as work's concerned. You so know, I've been doing a lot more reading. Sorry.
3: No, I was I was sorry going to say, you know, when you, you, you were kind of joking about losing your, your toes and everything like that, but that must have been one hell of a kind like, say over a 10-year period, that must have just kind of knocked you sideways, really
4: well it 's been irritating, I have to say, um, you know just because of the amount of time that's that it 's taken up um, and I think you just have to look at it that way when you get older you know you you 're going to get more things. Going wrong. I mean, it's just like being in an old car, and uh, you, know, you start hearing funny, funny knocking sounds. <laughs> and I'm wondering where they're coming from. <laughs> and
3: I'm, I'm getting that now. When I'm 44, I'm thinking, God, because my, my knees play up. Something like, I'm thinking, oh, not, not already. <laughs> you know, I would love to talk about. You know, because we we kind of email backwards and forwards now and again. And it's a while ago we emailed, and you were right in the middle of doing. You know, the Doctor Who, the the coming of the terror files and you said oh i can't really talk about that tony just yet can you now talk about that doctor who book
4: that you came out oh with? yeah of course i can because it's out yeah yeah and the paperbacks coming out i think in august um so you know it's uh, it's it's well well out now <laughs> what was it um, but, what was but... it
3: like to write a doctor who was it difficult to, well, to it... stay in the constraints or were you just left to kind of run your run wild with it
4: it was a bit difficult because they wouldn't. They were very paranoid about showing the original Matt Smith series. So all I had to go on there were a few clips. I mean, very small clips, which were probably pirate clips of some kind. You know, showing showing some early Matt Smith stuff. Um, and even that I didn't get till I was halfway through the the book. So basically, you know, the, a lot of the complaints about the book had been that it. Isn't really a Matt Smith Doctor Who. And I, and I understand those complaints because I, I, you know, I, I didn't have Matt Smith to go on at the time. I didn't really know what Amy's function was. So I, you know, it's a, it's a much, obviously a much more complex, um, storyline and, and Amy's a much more complex character than, uh, than I knew. You know, all I knew was, was the old, basically, you know, the ones up to David, um, Tennant. Um, and so I, I did my best with it, and I tried to you know to visualize Matt Smith, who i i 'd liked as an actor in in, in other things i 'd seen but of course i couldn 't know how he was going to interpret the part, and I just had to do my best with it and and anyway, what they told me to do was not to not to write a Doctor Who novel but to write a Michael moorcock novel with with Doctor Who in it, and I think probably that's that 's the general you know, consensus of that that's what I've done. Um, and, you know, I, I would have liked to have done more with Matt Smith because I think he's you know he does a very interesting you know um, take on the character, but uh, I didn't you know I couldn't do it that way. So so I basically did a um, you know a riff on on my own multiverse really um, as best I could. Also, I I was trying to I was I was because i because I hadn't had much chance to get down to solid work, um, I'd been doing a lot of reading. I'd been going back to my, as it were, wellsprings, you know, my, the, the, the books which had, which had originally, um, excited me when I was a kid, um, and a, and a, and a teenager. And one of those was P.G. Woodhouse. Um, so I, I thought, you know, why don't we, why don't I try to do a P.G. Wood, Woodhouse homage? And the Doctor Who homage at the same time, um, so that's what I tried to do. And whether whether it you know, whether it worked or not is entirely up to the individual reader. I mean, I've had such wide um, responses to it, a wide you know wide range of responses to it that uh, that some, you know, some people absolutely hate it, and uh, some people you know love it. So it's it's uh, as usual. I mean, whenever you bring out a new book, that's that's usually what you know what you get. So
3: um well, if you were given the was, chance if you were given the chance to write it, another another one you know in that kind of same vein would you keep it in your uh, Michael Moorcock writing Doctor Who or would you maybe because now we've seen a few of the Matt Smith shows would you maybe tweak it a little bit to to conform to what we all know as Matt Smith?
4: Oh I would I mean I would have done that if I'd have had a chance because I was you know I was trying to write for Max, uh, the Matt Smith series, obviously, because I knew that was coming out, and they they told me everything they could, but but it was like um, I don't know, uh, sort of like like, like uh, you know the NASA secrets as far as they were concerned. <laughs> uh, frank, frankly, I, I think they are a bit self-important about it, you know, because they're such a big fan base now. They seem to think that you know that it's that it's a matter of of, of of world world shaking concern whether or not, you know, you know if Matt Smith's got a bow tie on it or not, you know, that sort of thing. So so it was a bit funny. They wouldn't let me have any any um uh previews at all. Um and if I was doing it if I was doing it now, I would write obviously more a more Matt Smith sort of sort of uh, doctor. But I don't think I'd do another one. Um I've really got no um, it was fun to do one, you know, because it was a, it was it was an homage to my own um, enthusiasm for Doctor Who, and and so it was great to do to do it. You know, to put him into a story and write a story about him. But it it it's uh, it's actually harder to do than write uh, a more ambitious sort of novel, you know, of the kind that I'm writing at the moment. So it's it's it's. Really, I I wouldn't really do it again. I don't think.
3: Well, let's jump now, then, if you don't mind. To we've just ran and we've actually played today on this show the the last episode or the last part of your Black Petals. Tell us a little bit about Mm -hmm. this this Black Petals because this was a novella. Am I right in thinking that came
4: out? Yes, yes, it was. And and uh, um, it's not just that; it's also the base of the French. um, I've done a French a collaboration with a French. Friend of mine, um, Fabrice Collin, who is a, a well-known fantasy writer in France, and uh, we got together and, and uh, using that as the base uh, of the novel, we expanded it and and uh, turned it into an Elric novel. So it's the first, it's the first new Elric novel, in, for, you know for a long time. And it's obviously the first one ever to appear first in France. It's you know the the French edition is the first edition. Um, and it's 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 the kind of thing I like to do, you know, which is to i don 't know um, sort of play with with whatever with whatever you 've got available and i I really did enjoy doing it that way and essentially I'm writing, um, i 'm writing i 'm writing novellas uh for the english speaking market as it were, and then um if, if this first one goes well, and it does seem to be going well, um, we'll probably do another one based on a second novella that I wrote, and then I've got a third novella, and that will probably be the end of it, unless, of course, um, Fabrice himself wants to write another one, which I doubt he would do because he's got, you know, he's got his own work to do. But it's, it's great doing it, and it had a huge response in France, um, you know, very positive response in France, and so we, you know, we, we, I've, I've been enjoying it.
3: Well, even just with this novella, you know, the response I've had for playing this has just been fantastic. Do you know what I mean? It, to oh, be quite honest, it, it always is when you, when you, when you do run a Moorcock story. I remember, you know, when you first let us play London Bone, the response, you know, with that story was just like off the scale, and it was actually London Bone came out the, the first one in the kind of re-energized Starship Sofa, and that's what actually kicked it off, you know, so... Mike, I've got you to thank for making Starships over what it is today. Thank you so much. No,
4: I <laughs> that Tony, but,
3: but it's, it's nice to say so. <laughs> no, I, I, honestly, it really is because it was, it was that story and I got it narrated by MCL Studios, who's a kind of friend as well. And it was just listening to it thinking, you know, you can do so much with this kind of this audio, this broadband tech thing that's going on. And it was from there that I thought, let's just see if we can change Starships over and run it in a different direction. <laughs> So it's it, it's it's basically down to you, sir. Two Hugo no, well. <laughs> nominations later, thank you very much. So, Black Petals. You, you know what you're saying you write this novella, how is it, and you enjoy t- changing it into a, a novel? How do you how do you just expand it? Do you, do you just fill it full full of waffle, or do you, is it different different no, no. threads going?
4: You, you, sorry. And what you do is you, you basically take the threads of the story you know there are the, the characters that are essentially minor characters in the novella and you build up those characters and you complicate the plot it's, it's, it's not that difficult to do um, but to give value you know, to the reader you've got to put in more stuff you can't just um, you know make it a kind of um, you know just blow it up like a bigger balloon as it were full of Full of air, um, you have to put in substance, and uh, you do that really. But what we did anyway was was just talk it over, you know, to, to discuss um, first of all what we had, then what we were going to do with it, and 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 um, and what kind of characters we were going to use. And Fabrice used a, a different technique to my technique, which um, he did it by uh, by. As basically interspersing, um, Eric's story with the story of another Melnibonean character. Um, and, you know, slowly the two threads come together to, to, uh, you know, to make the climax. And I think it worked pretty well. Um, certainly according to the, most of the, the readers that I've, that I've talked to, they, they seem to like it. What's it like working
3: then with a with a French author because they must have, you know, d- different techniques and you know, I know you would obviously be able to speak fluent well, French but is there any hang up there?
4: <laughs> um well uh, no we we have better food in the restaurants when we're talking <laughs> it over. Um <laughs> and I think that's about it really. I mean there's not a lot of difference. Um uh you know the the fan base in France is probably as big as anywhere. You know, they they have huge conventions and there's an awful lot of readers and, and you know, they have a lot of specialist bookstores, you know, and that sort of thing. So we're really writing to the, you know, I'm really writing to exactly the same audience I've been writing for, you know, ever since I began. The thing is that I, um, Eric's first... After England, Elric's first exposure was in France, really, and uh, that's where Philippe Drier, the um, you know the, the graphic artist. Um, that's the first ever Elric, Elric strip was ever done was was done in France in a in a in a magazine that, that came and went as it happened, um, and so I've I've always had a very strong um, attachment to to France and and French readers, and I've. You know had some beautiful additions done over here so it, there wasn't really a great it was it was a comfortable thing to be doing i must say you know i i really enjoyed it and and the same thing with the response you know has been very good um a kind of affectionate response if you like in France just because he you know there's a certain certain sentimental attachment as as well as everything else to you know to uh to, from my point of view to to you know to Elric coming out in french so um yeah i i've uh, i've uh, completely forgotten what we were talking about. I was, are, you, <laughs> Sorry, but... are you always close to Elric you know like you character?
3: or do you sometimes need to step away from that and just to like get him out of the way for god's sake and write something different no. or is it is he one of them characters that you can just you know, you'll have stories now in your mind that you've never even thought, you know, wrote down.
4: Yeah, I, I do, actually. I, I, I don't get tired of them. You know, Conan Doyle and, is supposed to have got sick of Sherlock Holmes and, um, you know, various other authors who've had characters like that are, are supposed to have, you know, seen them as a burden after a while. But I really don't get that with Elric. It's partly because Elric has always been, as it were, an aspect of myself, um, the only problems with is that as I get older and and uh if not wiser, slightly more uh, buried in my, my um way of looking at the world, um I have to make Ulrich like that because there's no other way of dealing with it. So I have to find ways of making it um uh credible that uh, you know, that he would, would have the thoughts, if you like, of, a, of an older and wiser person. Um, and that, that that's a bit of a problem, I have to say. But apart from that, there really isn't any other problem. I I enjoy doing them. And with these, I've gone right back to an earlier an earlier form of Elric, from really pretty much the earliest stories. And uh, that way, I, I in a way, I kind of re, rejuvenate him, if not me. I mean, I probably rejuvenate myself a little bit too. Um and I really do have a lot of fun doing it. I um the black petals originally appeared in, in Weird Tales and uh, it's nice even though Weird Tales isn't quite the same as it used to be. It was uh, it was very nice to to have a story in Weird Tales at last. Um you know in, in the same magazine that 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 Howard and Lovecraft and you know and, uh, and Ray Bradbury for that matter appeared in, you know, at an earlier time so yeah it's it just a lot of fun
3: is, so you, you see it's coming out this book's coming out in France soon is is it have you got yeah, a publisher ha- for the UK and for America
4: no I haven't I haven't even talked about it yet um, you know ultimately uh, I, I suspect what I want to do is to have somebody translate it from the French not me to do it but somebody you know somebody else to do it I just like that idea of, of change you know of, of Sort of strange sea changes. Um, I, I've always liked it. I've just, you know, it's it's what I've done with Jerry Cornelius, and and uh, um, in the sixties Keith Roberts did a, did some stories based on my ice schooner um, world and characters. So uh, you know I've always liked that sense of, of, of basically throwing something out there and seeing what other people do with it, and that's what I'm looking forward to with this. You,
3: you mentioned as well, totally changing the subject, that you're on, and is it in the UK, a panel
4: for New Worlds? Yeah, it's um, it's part of the, uh, the British Library this year is doing a big exhibition, which I think runs from, or ran from May and is going to run until September, of uh, science fiction, basically, um, just all sorts of of. Different aspects of science fiction stuff they've got in their you know in their um, uh, files, and uh, they at the same time they're also running an exhibition of Mervyn Peake because it's Mervyn Peake's centenary this year, and they've got a whole collection of Mervyn Peake. So it's it's they're they're really concentrating on on fantasy in general and science fiction in particular, and uh, and Mervyn Peake as the specific writer. So it's 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 a very nice um, thing. I mean, very, very elaborate and, and ambitious. And they're flying uh, Norman Spinrad over from America. They've got John Clute, who used to be the n- main New World's um, critic. Um, Norman, of course, was associated with New World's because he got us banned. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, um, uh, uh, somebody, oh Brian, oldest. They're, they're they're um, and they're still not quite sure whether Brian will be able to make it. You because know, he's eighty five now, but he's very lively eighty five. So we'll have to see what, whether Brian will be there or not. I'm hoping he will be because I haven't actually seen him for for a long time, and uh, and Rose Caden is going to be the interlocutor, as it were, who's you know going to p- try and keep it all together. So um, when is this? I, uh, it's uh, it's next week. It's on the the twenty first. Uh, yeah, the twenty first at the British Library, um, and uh, yeah, it should be should be a pretty pretty good evening. I think we, we're obviously going to turn it over to the audience as well and see what you know. I, I always prefer a, a dialogue with the audience rather than just standing on a stage. Originally, I was asked just to do a presentation about New Worlds and, you know, and what it was like, but that's that's a very um, to me, that's, that's, that's not a very interesting thing to do. So, um, we're, you know, we're going to be on, there'll, there'll be a panel of us and we'll probably have very different opinions. Um, and then, then we'll open it up to the audience and see what the audience wants to, wants to talk about.
3: You know, it's, it's funny as well, because I'm sure I read a few months ago that New Worlds it, itself is starting up again.
4: Yeah, and 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 those guys are f- are filming this event as well, so that should 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 appear somewhere at some point. Um, yeah, they, they um, a friend, an old friend of mine, Dick Jude, who used to be the manager of Forbidden Planet in London. Um, he 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 wrote to me and asked, you know, that he'd been talking to a bunch of bunch of people, and he said, you know, they they just thought they'd like to revive New Worlds and 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 open it up to. To various um, you know new talents and try and try and uh, try and do what what we done 40 years ago, <laughs> which which is sort of a bit strange in a way, but um, but it'd be interesting to see what they produce. Uh, they haven't they haven't got an issue out yet. I think they've only just started to to you know to get it together. But uh, I'll be curious to see it. Are you are you been involved, involved in it with, with any way? Weird... No, no. I'm in no way involved in it, except my name's on on the front, <laughs> I think. But uh, apart from that, I'm not uh, I'm not doing any. Um, you know, I, I'm, obviously, I, I'll, if they want a story from me, I'll contribute a story. Uh, but uh, I don't think, um, you know, I don't think uh, that, that I'll have any other involvement. I don't want any other involvement. You know, we we've done this with New Worlds in the past. We had a whole series of issues. In the 70s, excuse me, and I think early 80s it went into. But anyway, it, was, it started in the late 70s, of of uh, a group of people, a different group of people doing, um, you know, doing an issue or two, and then handing it over to another group of people, and they do an issue or two, and so. on. Um, again, I, I always like to get fresh angles on things. I, I don't, I don't, um, I'm not really one of those people who likes to keep. Keep his own uh, control of you know of of, uh, of of the canon or what should be or anything like that i just i 'm much more interested in seeing what other people you know will do with something i 'm um, not always uh, delighted by what happens, but it's again there 's enough people out there um, who who'll support something that uh, um, it, yeah, you know, it's just interesting to see how they respond. Did they, did they
3: have to get your permission to use, like, the New World? Yes,
4: they did. Yeah, because I actually own the, that's for what it's worth, I own, I own the title. Um, which again, I, I didn't set out to do, but, um, years ago when, when the first partner I had, the publishing partner I had, he actually jumped ship while I was in America. I came back and found that, you know, that, there wasn't anybody publishing it. He, he just said, "You know, it's all yours, Luck, Stuck, and Barrel." I'm off to Scotland, and I haven't seen him since. <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I, you know, I took over publishing um, at that point, which would have been about 1967. And uh, and it was it was those issues which were probably the the uh, you know the best issues that we we we'd ever done with the with the you know best bunch of of uh, stories and so on in them, um, they were the large-sized new worlds that, that we sat Well, obviously that started going um, from '67 onwards.
3: I, I tell you what, I, I'm I seen on because I was looking on. You know, like what you've got published and what's what's actually forthcoming. And is there something a Stormbringer screenplay?
4: Are you working on a Stormbreaker screenplay? No, 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 I'm not. Um, Somebody was, um, or somebody has, and there is a screenplay. Um, But uh, no, there's nothing really um, in uh, going at the moment. uh, You know, Universal had the rights, and uh, since the recession, unless you're basically unless you're a a comic book character, (laughs) they're not really interested in uh, in you know, doing very expensive and probably slightly dodgy uh, characters like Ulrich. So, so I, I think it's got to wait till the recession's over, if it's ever over, um, before before that starts getting back to the screen. But what what is happening is uh, um, a, a guy called Chris Robinson, um in Austin, Texas, which is near where I live, and who's a friend of mine. He, uh, he approached boom boom comics um some some time ago and uh and they're doing a they're doing a um, an Elric comic book which is coming out i think in july or august um, i've seen the first one and you know it's it's uh, again it's very interesting and and it sort of tends to take Elric back to his roots which i'm uh, which i'm glad about although it it also has other other Eternal champion characters in it as well as Elric. It's got you know the main ones, Hawkmoon and Coram and um, the modern character who's called usually called John Dacre, or um, in this case he's a I think he's a Beck character. Um, so so Chris is doing that, and uh, and there's a bunch of French guys who are also doing a French Elric comic, which uh, or rather I think it's a um, it's probably more european than, than specifically french um although it's mostly French people who are doing it um and that's that's a that's a totally different take um on uh, um you know on the kind of comics that have been done around Elric in in the past so uh, mostly what's going on seems to be in the in the you know in the area of graphic novels rather than movies. You know, it does sound like
3: everything. You, you know, there is so many, and I guess that's what you're saying. You, you like that kind of diversion. So many offshoots from what you've created. You know, with Elric and everything like that. Everybody else is having to go and changing it and, and having put their own little stamp on
4: things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I love seeing that. I'm always it. it, it you know, it it, it 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 stimulates me as well. You know, because Sometimes I mean I might not even like what's you know what somebody's doing. Not that that would make me stop them or saying you know bad about it. I'm just curious to see what what somebody else does as a take, and from that I can you know I get stimulated myself to do something something in turn. So you know it works very well for me. I I I don't know whether whether it would work for anybody else like that. But I've always been. Um, as it were, a team player. Even though, even though I've done very few, very few um, collaborations, I've, I've, I've always enjoyed throwing a character out there and seeing what other people will do with it.
3: So you, you mentioned early on there, just when we first started talking, about essays, and you, you're quite into writing non-fiction now and doing essays. Is, is that still happening now? Yeah, still... Uh,
4: yes. Well, it's. I think it's. Partly that I've just had an awful lot of people asking me to do stuff, um, and being an old hack, you know, I can't, I can't, I can't say no. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, I, so I, I, you know, I've just, I've just taken on doing a, a lot of newspaper reviews and 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 forwards to other people's books, that sort of thing. Um, I've just been doing a lot of it, uh, particularly this year. Um, to the point where it 's begun to um, threaten what i 'm doing with my my own fiction, so i 'm actually going to have to start backing off from from doing to, from doing too much stuff but um, it 's partly also been around you know, Mervyn Peak centenary, so people tend to ask me to write introductions to various peak volumes, and we 've got the uh, the Mervyn Peak Sunday books coming out, which I think come out. Again, I think July or august, um, which again was first done in France i did it i what I did is i I took the the drawings that that Mervyn had done for his boys when they were young, um which are you know just just the same kind of drawings you see in in a lot of his work, but he'd happened to do these just for his his sons you know to to pass the time on a on a dull sunday afternoon and so I, um Sebastian Peake showed them to me originally, and we wondered what the best way of, you know, presenting them to the public would be, and I suggested uh, to an editor friend of mine in France that. That I could do the the text and uh, you know and they could publish publish the text and the illustrations and I, I must say Tony it's probably one of the most beautiful books it is one of the most beautiful books I've ever been involved in it's just a lovely book it's the production is beautiful so I'm hoping that the same production values will you know will be used in England and, and America um, and uh, you know and, and it'll 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 impress. The English speaking world as much as it has the French speaking world. It's it's really been a, a very great, um, um, I don't know, this it's, it's a, you know, um, um, a critical success here, um, largely because it is such a beautiful book. It's nothing to do with my text. It just looks great. Um, and, uh, and what I've done there is I wrote I, I wrote basically some nonsense verse and some little nonsense stories to go with the pictures, and it's uh, people are slightly baffled by it because they don't know whether it's supposed to be a um, an adult book for children or a children's book for adults, <laughs> and, and it's a it's a bit of everything really. Um, you know, it's it's a kind of book that kids kids can enjoy as, as well as adults, I think. So you know that that's uh, that's probably the thing I'm proudest of of being associated with in in the last year or,
3: or two. Well, Mike, honestly, it's been lovely talking to you. And you honestly, you do sound more upbeat and kind of you know just alive with everything. Because like say when we come over, you just yeah. you seemed a little bit you know like in pain. While well, you were you were limping, do you know what I mean? When we took you out for lunch, you were kind of limping there. And it's it's lovely to hear you there now. You know what I mean? Things are kind of not say looking up, but you know you you. A lot more healthier there now when things are sorted.
4: So good on you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and and I mean, I'm not a lot more optimistic really, just because I can get out and about. You know, in, uh, until recently, I, I you know I ever had to, I was either hobbling and usually doing some sort of damage to my foot. I mean, when I saw you, um I I was after, shortly after that I was back in hospital. You know, with another problem with my foot. So. um It it was just an ongoing constant, you know, in in my life. And now that all the toes are off and my foot's completely healed up, I'm actually feeling (laughs) considerably better because there's not much else, I'm fingers crossed, there's not much else can go wrong with with my foot now that I haven't got anything much left of it. (laughs) So are you still fine dining and,
3: you know, nice meals and everything like that?
4: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, there's a new restaurant here, near here, which we, which we, um, which we've been going to, and just, just recently, which we're, where the food is just a buy for. I mean, the French can still turn it out when they want to. We've got a McDonald's down on the corner, you know, but but uh, just across the way from there, we there's a there's this really great restaurant that we that we go to quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, and and, and museums, you know, and and. Uh, all the other stuff. Although, to be honest, I've been working so hard that I haven't had much of a chance to go out during the day. Um, so it has been mostly in the evenings and, and therefore mostly restaurants. <laughs> and I'm, I think I'm getting fat again. I, I'm, uh, I'm, <laughs> Don't worry I'm not about really that. really complaining.
3: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, honestly, Mike, it's just been a, a dream to speak to you again. You know, thank you so much for taking the time out to come on Starship so far. Oh, well, thanks a lot, Tony. It was really a pleasure. Thank you, honestly. Thank you so much. Okay. Cheers. And there you go. What a show. Come on, oh, man. Three-part special, Mike Moorcock, art by Ben Wooten, and just a fantastic narration by Peter Cavall. Everyone who's taken part in that, honestly, that over these three weeks, thank you so much means a lot to us thank you what will be going on next week only i know i've got a clue just yet so until then just like to say good night from me
4: will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal can they win through with their integrity unscathed can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation Procedure Initiated. Shuttle set
2: for us. Airlock will be opened in 3,
1: 2, 1.